Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, before I get to the sermon, I want to just kind of remind us of why did we do this? What was up with all of this? Um, about a year and a half ago, I think it was, at a business meeting, I discussed what we call a theology of space. And what I said was God created us as three-dimensional beings, and he created a lot of three-dimensional space, and he put us in that space. And that space has an effect on us. We, we just are built to be aware of the situation around us. And at that meeting, I put up pictures. Uh, I put a picture up of a boat on a lake. And I said, now, you're in that boat. How loud are you speaking right now? You're out on this majestic lake. You're whispering. It's, it's so huge and so beautiful. And then a city street. And how do you feel there? Do you feel like you're on a lake in a city street? It, the scene we're in, the, the, the three-dimensional space we're in affects us. And so the next thing I brought up was the worship space. What, what, what does the space we're in when we worship mean? So I put up a, a picture from a, a big concert. And there were tears and there was you know, hundreds of people and the stage was lit and there was fog and lights and lasers and all that. So when you go into that environment, what do you expect? What is your expectation of this? Well, I better have a good time or I'm going to want my money back. I expected to be entertained. And then the next one I put up, I think, was a coffee shop. When you go into the coffee shop, what are you expecting? Well, I would like to be relatively left alone, maybe hang with my friends, have a nice cup of coffee, eavesdrop on the conversation next to me, and people watch. And I don't, you know, I don't expect much out of this. I don't expect the baristas to come over and sing to me or something. So when I came to worship, I said, here's a picture of a Gothic cathedral. What does this big Gothic cathedral tell you about God in the, in the view of the people who made it. God is majestic, he's huge, he's exalted, he's high, he's lifted up, he's very, very distant from us. We can stand at the back of the cathedral and barely see the, sanct or the, uh, the altar at the front where the, the priest is doing his thing. And then I put up a picture of a Puritan worship center and it was very simple, very clean. And I said, what did you think of that? And people said, well, it seemed like it was scholarly and, and you know, word-based. So then I put ours up before we did the update, and I said, now what do you think of when you see our space? Anybody remember what we said? Beige. <laughs> I said, is, does beige communicate what we believe about God? And so that's why we said we, we just want to refresh this worship space so that it communicates what we believe about worship. So some things have changed in this room. What are two things that have not changed in this room? There's a cross dead center of this. What's most important in this church is the death, or the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's not going to move. That doesn't get pushed off to a side. That doesn't get put on the side wall or, or tucked in a corner. Jesus remains central to this church. And what else is central in this room? This pulpit. And it's not the person who occupies the pulpit. It is the pulpit. It is God's word is central. And that's not going to change. So those are the things that we are not, that, that won't be touched. And, and someday when I retire, and you, or we, hopefully I'll still be around, <laughs> when I retire and we hire a new pastor, that's the question, is, is the cross central and is the word true? And that's, we don't want any of that to change. But we did want to refresh this space a little bit. So one of the things we did was we put up this, this wall so that we could throw a little texture on there so it wouldn't be so bland. It didn't feel beige. <laughs> it had a little texture to it, but you notice what's not behind me is a big black curtain with lasers and smoke machines 
and, and flashing lights and all of that. <laughs> Lord, forgive them. They're in revolt. <laughs> you know, all I can think of is I brought that one on myself. I think that's just my fault. Uh, I, you open that door and you expect people to not walk through, and they just do. Um, but, but we didn't want to capture that entertainment aspect. We don't want you to come in here and think, this had better be good or I'm, you know, be really disappointed. Um, but we didn't want to leave it so harsh and stark either. So we replaced the wall so it had a little texture, but it's not a performance space. And why did we do the ceiling of all things? Well, there was a couple of reasons. One is the lighting we had was fluorescent and it had kind of a harsh industrial feel. And we just didn't want to come in to worship the Lord and have the feeling that we're going to work or something. So, yeah, what we can do is, uh, Paul's demonstrating, we can change the, the tone of the color. This is more white, this is more sunlight, and then we can kind of mellow it out to a brown. So the, the one over there in the corner, that's Kevin, that light. <laughs> Kevin is kind of special, Kevin kind of does his own thing. And, you know, Kevin is hanging out in a brown space right now, and he's not going to join the rest of them. So, you know, we'll just, we'll just say, okay, you know. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're going to see about getting that replaced. Uh, it, won't, it won't dim correctly. And, and like, like Ramey said, there's some things to work out. But we, we made the, the room, the lights in the room, we wanted them to have a, more, a little bit warmer feeling. So it was just a little bit more comfortable. It wasn't so industrial to kind of settle us down a little bit. And then the ceiling being black, well, first of all, I think one of the words that was described to me is it's contemporary. And, and that's true. And, and I think there's actually something to that because, like I said, the cross doesn't change, the word of God doesn't change. But we are called constantly to preach those things in a contemporary setting. We're, we're called to preach it here and now. And so if the ceiling it looks a little contemporary, that's not really a bad thing. The other thing is, and my hope is, after about two weeks of looking up and commenting on the ceiling, we'll absolutely forget it. And let us never speak of it again. <laughs> we will just say, ah, oh, yep, that's, that's our worship center. The idea is it's supposed to just fade out because it's dark. It doesn't, the, the stains, anybody remember the stains? <laughs> I've already forgotten. Remy said it's only last week. I'm like, I've already forgotten them. The stains drew your attention. Even unconsciously, you would see these kind of things. And so what we're hoping is this uniform, dark color just fades. And so the one word I would use to describe this room right now is it's different. But in about two weeks, I'm hoping it won't be different. It'll just be this room. So that was our point. That's why we're doing that. So this completes the first phase of our, our facility refresh, is we wanted to touch the worship space. Um, because when people come in, we want to have a certain feel, a certain aesthetic. Um, like I said, not, a, not a, a rock concert, but at the same time, not an industrial warehouse. So we've done that. The interior has been touched here. The next thing we want to do is move outside. And so what we'd like to do is redo the landscaping out front. Um, I remember when Bob Burris was the pastor here and we did that. I think it was 91 or 92. We redid that and it hasn't been really touched since. It's made and maintained, but I think it's time for a refresh on that. And um, so that, that'll be our next phase. After the, the, the outside, now we've got a building that looks like somebody actually is here, that it's not abandoned. 
And so when people now come in, they have a, a, a certain aesthetic in here, and there's an outside that feels like it's alive, is now the next thing is we want to capture them on the way out. So we're going to put cages that drop from the ceiling. <laughs> we're not going to put cages that drop from the ceiling. What we want to do is the library across the hall, it's hidden behind two doors. And so imagine if you're a visitor here, you don't know that there's food on the other side of that wall. You just, you have no idea. You walk out and you see a wall and so you turn and you leave. So what we'd like to do is open that up, create what's called a narthex. And so in the narthex, what we'll do is we'll capture a little bit of that coffee shop feel. We want to have it, it feel like a place that you'd want to go in and hang out and meet people and talk with people and make friends, maybe get a little coffee and, um, and get a snack or two. And we want it open so that people can see that and be drawn in there. So what we're doing is we're touching the outside so when people pull up, they won't feel like it's abandoned warehouse. We've touched the inside so the inside doesn't feel like it's an occupied warehouse. And so now as they leave, after they've worshiped with us, we want to have one more chance to engage with people and just, just make some contact. And so we want to build that kind of coffee shop feel back there. So that's, that's the plan. That's the goal. So um, the next phase will be some landscaping. So be, be ready for some discussion about that. And I am not going to talk about the ceiling again in a worship service. That, that's that. So having said that, um, want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to head to the back, um, your teacher will meet you. And as they're going, let me open us in a word of prayer. Lord, as we sang this morning, we were reminded of your glory. And one of the songs called you holy, holy, God of love, and asked to see your glory. And so, Lord, this morning as we engage with uh, Moses' song of by the sea, um, we pray that same thing. We want that same thing. Lord, would you be most holy in our sight and show us now your glory. So, Lord, Holy Spirit, this is your word. You inspired it. You gave it to Moses to write. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, it was written for us. And so, Lord, this morning as we approach and we come to your word, would you speak to us through what your word is telling us? And we ask all of this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen. So I already snuck the title in. It's Song by the Sea. Um, one, one of the commentators said, well, some people call this Moses' song, but there's actually another place where it's Moses' song. And there's like, I think it's Psalm 91 is Moses' song. So that's probably not the best description. I think this is a good, better described as the Song by the Sea. So to get to the song, we have to get last week and kind of catch up because they're, they're tied together. So last week was the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh's army. And if you remember last week, I said when God speaks in a passage, that's the most important thing. And when God repeats himself in a passage, that's the heart of what he's trying to get at. And what we saw last week is God spoke and he repeated himself. And what he repeated is that he would get glory over Pharaoh. And so we looked at what does it mean to get glory over Pharaoh? There's different ways to translate it, glory through or at Pharaoh. And then I said, well, what's glory? So you can't talk about glory in an evangelical setting without mentioning John Piper because he has just mastered that subject. He has just poured over every scripture that's done with it and has really nailed it. So what I used last week to explain what glory is, as I said, let's look at Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. And surrounding him are angels who are singing out constantly, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
the earth is full of his, and you would expect holiness because he's so holy. But because he's so holy, the earth is filled with his glory. And so what John Piper says is, God's glory in this world is the expression of his holiness. It is his holiness going public and showing forth what it means that he is so superlatively holy that in this created world, it, is, it, it shows forth in glory. And so when we said that, I said, okay, that's what his glory is. How is he getting glory over Pharaoh? Because God is, by definition, holy. That's who he is. That's, that's his nature is to be holy. So how does he get glory? How do we give glory to God? And again, I went back to Piper. What John Piper said is God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. In other words, when God's holiness shows forth in this world and we see that and we love it and we delight in it, we say that is the most magnificent thing, then God receives glory. Does it change who he is? Does it increase his holiness? No, he's, he's intrinsically holy. He just is. But he receives glory when we see and appreciate and love and delight in that, that holiness. And so that was what glory was. And what I said last week is he's going to get glory over Pharaoh or through Pharaoh or at Pharaoh. He will receive glory. And what I was hinting at as I was pointing forward to this chapter now, because what we hear in chapter 15 is the response of his people. He has done a thing, and now they respond, and that response is glory. It brings him more glory. It, it glorifies him. And the response is worship. It is to the delight in the Lord. And so this, this chapter, this first part of chapter 15, is a lengthy song singing and extolling God in his, in his greatness. And then there's this kind of recapture in verse 22, says again, what happened at the Red Sea, and then Miriam comes out and sings. So I think there's, there are quote-unquote quote, quote problems with this, um, with Moses' song. And so some people are kind of wrestling with why is it that Miriam comes out and sings after they just sang this song, and how do they relate, and what's going on. And so one idea is that this is antiphonal. Familiar with that term? That's, that's, that's your college-educated word of the day, antiphonal. It is where one person would sing something and the antiphony would be the other person singing it back. And the, the singing goes back and forth. And we do that sometimes in our songs, is we'll have somebody sing one thing and then you'll hear a refrain sung back. That's called an antiphony. So the idea is maybe what's going on here is it's antiphonal. Moses came out and started singing this and Miriam came out and responded and it went back and forth. Um, I don't think that really does it because Miriam's really short and Moses is really long. So it could be that um, uh, I forget which psalm it is, where every other verse is um, his steadfast love endures forever. So maybe they did it that way. That's nice, but that's not how it's written. There's, there's nothing in the text to anticipate or explain it that way. So maybe that's not what's going on. The other quote-unquote problem is the end of Moses' song says that um, it talks about people they haven't encountered yet. The, the people will hear. They will tremble. Well, how, how can they hear? This just happened. It's going to be months before they hear anything. It takes time for, for information to travel. They don't have the internet. Um, and then it mentions people that they haven't run into yet. Uh, Philista, Moab, the inhabitants of Canaan, Edom. And so that kind of is saying, well, maybe it's prophetic looking forward. And that's entirely possible. God could have inspired Moses to say, hey, look, this is what's going to happen on the rest of your trip, is you're going to run into these guys, and they're going to be terrified of you. Like, that's what will happen when we get through the rest of the Pentateuch. 
I have a slightly different take on the relationship between the two songs. Um, and at first I was really nervous because I wasn't seeing it in commentaries. And I'm like, always be terrified of innovative theology. It should scare you to death. And so I kind of was holding it loosely. And then I came across a couple of commentaries that didn't directly explain it, but kind of hinted at what, what I was saying. And I felt like I was on surer ground. So here's my theory. Here's my theory. If, if we go back to the parting of the Red Sea in time, and we are standing there, the event has just happened, you can still hear the waves rushing on the shore as they've swallowed up Pharaoh's army, and we can still see bodies popping up on the other side. That's the point in time where the event happened. And so what, what happened next at that Red Sea, at that shore? My theory is that Miriam and the ladies came out and spontaneously started singing, and they sang this short little song that said, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider is thrown into the sea. And that was that. That was the, the moment at the sea. But that was such a pivotal, such an important event. That song, kind of like an earworm, stuck in everybody's head. And so now as they're marching out, they continue to repeat and repeat that song. They sing it over and over again. And as their experience grows throughout the Exodus, they add to it, and they, they bring more in, and they say more things. So now beam ahead to the time when Moses sat down with pen, I guess, or quill, and paper, or whatever he wrote on, and wrote Exodus. Now he's got this experience behind him of all these events that they've been through, and he, he picks up this song, and he recaptures this song, and he puts it in there. So why would he put that song in? Well, have you ever heard preachers quote hymns? Say, please say yes, because I've done it. <laughs> I'm hoping you've heard this. So, Preachers will quote hymns sometimes in a, in a sermon because what hymns do is they capture great ideas and they wrap words around them in such beautiful ways that it captures your heart and it just gets you. And you, you, that's the way to say that. That's, that's how that should be done. So maybe what's going on here is Pastor Moses is writing this hymn in here to remind Israel, hey, you guys, don't forget. We were at the sea and God delivered us and, and here's been our experience ever since then and, and it's all rooted in the fact that God killed our enemies and liberated us. And so then he comes back and he drops, that's why I think in verse 22 he goes back to the event. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness, oh I'm sorry, back up one, uh, verse uh, 19 rather, I'm sorry. For when the horses of Pharaoh and the chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters back over them and the people walked on dry land and Miriam and all that. So that's my theory, okay? Um, actual mileage may vary, um, taxes and uh, license not included. If you don't think that's the best explanation, I, I don't think you're necessarily wrong. It just felt like it fit together for me because of what comes up in, in Moses' song. So to begin, also, also I forgot, um, what Miriam sings is almost exactly word for word repeated at the beginning of Moses' song. Their slight difference is Miriam says, sing to the Lord. It's a, it's a command. You all sing to the Lord. And Moses picks up and says, I will sing to the Lord. But other than that, it's exactly the same thing. So I think what Miriam started, Moses picked up and, and elaborated on and, and added. So it doesn't violate the, the integrity of scripture. It doesn't you know, do anything funny like that. Some of the commentaries came up with some odd ideas of this was actually added after they settled in, the Canaan, in Canaan or something like that. I was like, I don't see it. I don't see it fit there. It seems to be more organic. Um, I think my answer fits it a little bit better. So um, if you like it, great. If not, I won't take it personal at all. 
So I think to make sense, we need to start with Miriam. So it starts out for the horses and chariots. We remember that. Then Miriam the prophetess. That's in verse 20. Miriam the prophetess. Um, prophetess is not used all that often in the Old Testament. There's, there's not many that, that do that. So why would Moses call her the prophetess? This is the first time she's spoken, as far as we know, in our experience anyway. And then the next thing he calls her is the sister of Aaron. Now, isn't that something? Because who is Aaron's brother? Moses. Why didn't he say my sister? Well, I, I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling it might have something to do with Numbers chapter 12. In number chapter 12, it starts like this. Mo Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had married. That was Zipporah, his, his wife. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? So Aaron and, and Miriam throw this kind of rebellion in his face, and God judges him for it. Miriam is struck with leprosy, and, God, and Moses prays, please remove that from her. So a couple of things that I think tie into this is, first of all, Miriam has just said, hasn't the Lord spoken through us also? Miriam feels that she has spoken God's word, that it hasn't just been Moses, but her and Aaron have spoken God's word too. So maybe that's why he would refer to her as a prophetess, as she has spoken God's word. Now, we don't have it recorded. It's not in here. We don't know exactly what she said, but maybe she is. And the other reason, why would he call her Aaron's sister and not mine? Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. And so he's not saying, she's not my sister anymore. You know, I've cast her off. He's just putting her in a, in a particular um, light, in a particular view of who she is. If she is a prophetess, and she's a rebel. And so maybe that's why he's bringing that up. Uh, that was the, the closest I could explain um, what was going on there. So anyway, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out with her with tambourines and dancing. Um, it's really funny that the name for the tambourine sounds like a tambourine. It's a tapa or something like that. So it sounds like tapa, tapa, tapa. So that's what they were doing. It's probably like what we mean by a tambourine with the, the chimes on the edge and the, the leather on the front, um, something along those lines. That was the musical instrument they had at, at hand, and so they went out, and Miriam sang to them. And she says, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. There's actually some wordplay in that that we can't see in English, but I don't, I don't want to do it here. Let me bring it out when we get to Moses, because Moses kind of draws out that wordplay a little bit more. But this is the song that they sing. I just picture him turning from the Red Sea and marching off into the wilderness, and this song is being sung throughout the camp of two million people as it spreads and it, and it goes from person to person, and they go with the reminder that it wasn't a fortunate afternoon when the wind blew across the sea and then stopped blowing when they got through and started blowing the other way, and it wasn't a fortunate event. The Lord has done this. The Lord has accomplished this thing. Do you remember the, from chapter 14 what the people's response originally was? Moses led them into the wilderness, took them right to the edge of the sea, and stopped. And they were like, okay, wouldn't it have been better if we just died in Egypt? I mean, aren't there enough graves there? You know, we weren't that bad off as slaves. Maybe we could go back because getting slaughtered in the wilderness doesn't sound great. They were really afraid. They were terrified. And Moses said, stand still, see, and be saved. That was it. That was their command. 
So their response now is, first of all, what Miriam sings, and then Moses now picks that up and amplifies it for us. He makes it even bigger. So here's, here's what's going on in this. It says, it repeats Miriam's song. Um, it starts with, um, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. Now, if you have a different translation than the ESV or the King James, you'll see a different word there, a different phrase. The New American Standard and the New International Version say he is highly exalted. So which is it? Um, yes. I do this all the time. Yes, it's both, actually. Both will work. Uh, what's behind that, and this is the wordplay that, that we need to pick out a little bit here because it, it teaches us something really important, is the word behind it is the word gaha, gaha. And what it means is exalt, to raise up. So gaha would talk about a river rising or a tree growing up. So it has to do with this being raised. Um, but when it's replied to a god or a person, it is they are highly exalted. They are raised up high to be looked at and to be admired. And so in the Hebrew, it says gaha, gaha. It says it twice. So what it's saying is he is exceedingly exalted. Um, he is highly exalted. But why then would we say he triumphed gloriously? Well, isn't that the same thing? How is it that they're at this moment saying he is highly exalted. Well, because he has triumphed gloriously. He just crushed the most powerful military um, unit in the world and sunk him in, a, in a, uh, watery depths. So God is highly exalted. He is, he is gaha gaha. He is, he is doubly exalted. He is way above everybody else. So you get this picture of God raising up, right? Going up higher. The people at one point are doubting, why did you lead us out in the wilderness? Why did you do this? And now as the, the army is destroyed, they look at God and God just grows bigger and bigger in their eyes. He goes up higher. Look at what happens to his enemies. <laughs> they don't do so well, do they? Um, it says that um, the Lord is my strength. He's become my salvation. I'll praise him. Uh, Pharaoh and his chariots were, I'm sorry, the horse and the rider are thrown into the sea. Um, in verse 4, Pharaoh and his chariots and hosts were cast into the sea. His chosen servants were sunk in the Red Sea. The uh, floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. So what happens to God's enemies? They're going down. God's going up. God is more exalted. They are debased. They are brought down. They are, they are struck lower and lower and lower for their oppression to God. So that's that wordplay that we, we can't really capture in, in English is that exaltedness and their humiliation. So this actually answers the question, wait a minute, if I go back and I read chapter 14, he didn't cast them in the sea. They were in the sea and he crashed the sea around them and, and he didn't throw them in it and sink them. He, he just brought the water back and they sank. Well, this is poetry. And poetry sometimes says things in different ways. Don't ever be deceived or, or don't ever be confused and think that poetry can't communicate truth. Poetry can communicate truth, and just like a good hymn, it can communicate it in a way that sinks it deeper into our heart, really grabs us, grabs our imagination by using different kinds of words. So is it true that Pharaoh and his horsemen sunk in the sea? Well, yeah, as the water crashed over them, they didn't rise above it. They didn't go surfing out of the Red Sea. They sunk. How it happened is not the important part of the song. The, the specific details of it, this, what is important is it actually happened. God, God did this. God sunk them. God drowned them. And he, he cast them into the sea. So that's the picture is God now is raised and his enemies are now sunk. They, they sink to the bottom. 
But don't also, don't, or I'm sorry, also don't miss the fact that this hymn is extraordinarily personal. It's not just, um, well, this group of people are saved. Listen to what it says. I will sing to the Lord. The Lord is my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. I will praise him. I will exalt him. So the, the deliverance that all this huge group, this two million people have ex experienced, is sunk down to the personal level. As they sing this hymn, they're identifying themselves, I will praise him. Not, well, the other people will take care of it, and I'll just kind of tag along. No, I will do this. I will exalt him. I will praise him. He is my God. I will worship him. So this is kind of where the Protestant emphasis on individualism comes from. Salvation is not a corporate identity. Salvation comes to us individually, one by one. You must believe. And so if Israel had come to the Red Sea and half of the group said, yeah, we'll stay here, they would not be delivered. Individually, every single Israelite had to walk across that, that land bridge that formed, that, that trough in the sea. They had to individually go through it. And so the response to that is not, God is really good to Israel, though he is. The response is, I will sing to the Lord. The Lord is my strength, my song, my salvation. It comes down to a personal level. And so that is the destruction of Pharaoh. That's Pharaoh's destruction. The next thing that we sing about is God's might. How did that happen? How did those things come about? Well, it was all because of God's might. So verses 6 through 13. Um, by the way, I, if you've got um, an ESV, it's, it kind of groups them, and there's like gaps, and I moved it. So um, actually... Don't tell anybody, but that kind of violates a little bit of the, what's in the Hebrew text because there's certain what are called diacritical markers that are put in there that say this is where to divide this and this. And I went, yeah, it doesn't seem to fit. So I kind of went past it a little bit. Not changing the text. I'm not violating the text. I'm just grouping the, the uh, scriptures a little differently. So uh, don't tell anybody. Just between us. Uh, so what is, what is going on here is, is we get to God's might how did he do this? And now we have to do some theology. And this is where I was saying, you know, don't forget, poetry communicates truth. Look through any good systematic theology at the attributes of God and be amazed at how often it comes out in poetic form. Why does it come out in poetic form? Because God is utterly holy. He is utterly other. He's different from everything else. So his holiness is what, what drives this use of poetic language, trying to capture this other person, this person who's so unique and different that we can't even wrap English words or human words around him, let alone English, to capture who he is because he's utterly holy. So his holiness is his difference, his, his set aside, his, his uniqueness. So if you were to go into the temple when it was standing, they would have, well, first of all, you'd be in trouble, but let's say you just get a tour. You go into the temple, and they have a pan for picking up ashes from the, temple, from the uh, altar. And this pan would haul the ashes out. And do you think those guys took that pan home at the end of the night and went and cleaned their house? Oh, no. That pan, though it had the most simple use, that pan was holy. That was set aside for use in the temple only. You didn't take that thing home. There was an altar at the front of the temple where they would burn the sacrifices do you think at, you know, after quitting time, they'd come out and you know, roast a barbecue on that and you know, sit down and eat? No, that was holy. That was set aside for a specific use. You want to do that? You go home and do that. This is, this is for the sacrifices. So this idea of holy is saying that it is set apart. It's different. So God's holiness 
his person, who he is, he is so different that we have to sometimes use poetic phrases to describe who he is. And so in this section that we're about to look at, we'll get some poetry to understand some really good theology about who God is. So Moses wants us to know who, who, who God is. And here's where we have to start using some theology. It talks about your right hand, your nostrils. D does God have a right hand or nostrils? He doesn't. God is spirit. So these are called anthropomorphisms. Anthropos, man, morphe, shape. So sometimes in the Bible, they will use human shapes to discuss something about God. So when it says, your right hand, O Lord, in glorious power, that's saying, your right hand, for most of us are right-handed, that's our strong arm. So that's picturing the strength the power of who we are. Your right hand, Lord, it's much more powerful than any other right hand we know of. You overthrew your enemies. You cast them into the sea. Your nostrils. God doesn't have a nose. So what's he talking about? Well, he's saying, you know, that east wind that blew across the, the uh, Red Sea and parted it? What it's saying is God did that. That came from him. He sent that, that, that breeze it was, or that wind. It was his doing. And it was so powerful and it accomplished so much of his purposes that the wall stood up like a, a wall on each side. They were heaped up and the depths congealed. They, they solidified so we could walk through and look at water standing straight up on each side. And that was God's breath. That was God's nose blowing on the land and making that happen. So this is, this is that theology we have to reach for. Is, is It's not saying God has an arm and hand. What it's saying is God does things intentionally and these things are not just accidents of nature they are what he intended to do so he brought that about he made that happen he brought those things to, to pass and so when he withdrew his breath the, the waves crashed back on pharaoh and his enemies were defeated so at the blast of his nostrils the wild water piled up Israel goes through on dry ground, and listen, it says, the enemy says, I will pursue, I will take over, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its full of them, I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. Who's center in that? Me, I, I'm going to, it's all about me, I'm going to have my desire, I'm going to have my way. That's not terribly unreasonable for who's speaking at this time in history. The Pharaoh comes out with 600 of his best chariots. That is a military force to be reckoned with. Not only did he come out with 600 of his best, he brought a whole bunch of other ones. And then he brought a bunch of people and horses. This is a military display that should send shivers down anybody's spine. It is huge. And so who are they facing? A bunch of escaped uh, slaves. They have some weapons, but it would be like if Russia sent all their tanks over here and dropped them on the beach at Long Beach and started charging up here and we're standing there with 22s shooting at them. We've got weapons we can defend ourselves, but it's not going to be terribly effective. The same thing with Pharaoh's army coming after them. So it's not unreasonable to think, well, we're going to win. Of course we're going to win. Look at these slaves. They're stuck by the sea. They can't go anywhere. We'll just charge down and run them over. We're, we got this. One of the things the Bible tells us is God opposes the proud. He, he, it's, it's repeated a number of times. God opposes the proud. So when these guys think they're going to go charging in, they're going to have their way, they're going to have their desire, they're going to destroy these people, what they forget is these are God's people. These aren't just ordinary slaves that you found someplace. This isn't some nation that you overwhelmed and, and took captive. These are God's people. And when God decides that he's going to deliver them, he will. 
And so verse 10, you blew with your wind and the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the many waters. God exalted, they sink like lead. And so the response then is, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Do you remember the, the plagues? They were a judgment on Egypt, but what Moses tells us, they were also a judgment on their gods. So who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who can withstand you? What God could ever re- with, with, um, uh, repel your power and your mer- might and your purpose? What God is there that can stand on the earth? It's a rebuke against idols. And this was a lesson that Israel will have to learn on the road. Because in a few weeks, we're going to get to Mount Sinai. And a few weeks after that, we're going to get to a golden calf. And they need to learn this lesson. Even though they stand and look at the golden calf and say, these are the gods that delivered you from Egypt. They're not the gods that delivered you from Egypt. So they need to learn this lesson that there is no God like God. He is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, and he does wonders. So that was one of the other questions is, is if they're traveling through the wilderness and they're writing this song and they're picking up the theology and they're gathering these, these things that they can sing to God about, why didn't they sing about the plagues? Wouldn't that have been in there? You, you crushed Egypt and, and then they pushed us out and then you delivered us through the sea. Well, maybe that's what that word wonders is doing there because that's what God performed in Egypt was his wonders over them. But also, there's another part to why I think it's not prominent in this song. What did we learn in chapter 12? Do you remember? Every year, you're going to do the Passover. You're going to have this celebration. You're going to eat this meal. You're going to remember these stories. And so they get another trajectory, if you will, another venue to remember the plagues, to remember the deliverance, and that's called the Passover. That's called the redemption of the firstborn. So that was already covered. This one, they'll have this song to remember what God did at the Red Sea because he could have delivered them from, but they got to go someplace. And so they got to get out of there. So that's his place. And here's, here's where it winds up. It says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. He bought them back. He, he went in and he defeated Pharaoh and he bought his people back. You have um, the people whom you have redeemed. And you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Well, where are they right now? As far as we know, they're standing by the Red Sea. You haven't delivered us to your holy abode yet. Um, We'll get there. That's why I think this may be looking later on. Um, Because what will come next is our next stop on this road trip will be Mount Sinai, where God will speak to Israel from the mountain. And so at this point, Mount Sinai will be his holy abode. That's where they'll meet with him. But that's not ultimately where his holy abode is, is it? Where it will be next is he'll lead them into Canaan, and they'll take over Canaan, and he will establish his name there. He'll have his tabernacle set there until David comes along and takes Jerusalem, and then they build a temple there by Solomon, and then that will be his holy abode until that's torn down and rebuilt. And then we'll, So it, it's not quite there yet, but that's where God is leading his people to, is his holy abode, that he's re- leading them to be with him. That's where he's going to go. So what we got was Pharaoh's destruction, the utter decimation of the enemy. We saw that that was because of God's might. And now the next one, verses uh, 15 and 16, what's the response? Well, the nations fear. 
The nations are going to be terrified. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. This is something that we'll see as we continue to go through the Pentateuch. You'll see that, especially in Jericho when, when um, the spies go into Jericho and they meet Rahab and she says, everybody's terrified of you. All the knees are knocking. Everybody is frightened. They heard about what your God did in Egypt. They are terrified. She announced it. She knew that's what was going on. As a matter of fact, read through Joshua and you'll hear that a lot. Yeah, we're terrified of these couple of million people that just showed up. They're scaring us to death. Terror and dread falls upon them because of our great numbers. Nope, because of the greatness of your arm. That's the theology of the deliverance, the theology of the conquest of Canaan, is it scares people to death because of what God's done. They're terrified of who he is. But don't forget Rahab. What did she do? She didn't say, well, you know, everybody's scared of you, and so they're going to fight real hard. She said, hey, I want to be on your side. I've seen what your God does. Your God makes our gods look really stupid. I want to, that's the God I want to be associated with. So when you come and you raid Jericho, please don't kill my family. Save us and, and let us join you. And so that's where who Rahab becomes. That's, that's that theme that we saw in the plagues. Remember this promise of a mixed multitude. It's not just Israel that he's delivering. He's primarily delivering Israel, but it's everybody. And so this fear goes out to the nations. And they are right to be afraid. They're opposing Yahweh, and Yahweh, it won't be stopped. But at the same time, there's hope. There's a possibility. If you will simply yield to him, then, then you can be part of the blessing. But unfortunately, they choose not to. Where does all this lead to? Where does it all resolve? Verses 15, 17 and 18. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. This is the message on the road that they needed to hear, is we are going to a place. We are heading in a direction. Yes, we're going to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. There's a reason for that. But we didn't, God didn't just destroy us here in the wilderness. We're going to get to a place. It is his holy abode. It is his place. It is his sanctuary. His sanctuary. That's really anticipating. That's really looking ahead because they haven't even talked about the tabernacle yet. They haven't even discussed that, let alone the temple is, is hundreds of years in the future. It's a long ways in the future. So this is that promise of where are we going to go with our deliverance? How are we going to get there? What's going to happen to us? Well, God doesn't just deliver out of, he delivers unto so God doesn't just defeat our enemies and then say, well, you know, now make it up. He delivers us out of the oppression of our enemies and unto himself, unto his temple, unto his tabernacle, unto who he is. So back up and look at this again. Pharaoh's defeat. Moses comes in, confronts the most awesome military power in the world, the strongest nation on the earth, single-handedly face-to-face with Pharaoh, challenges him, gets him to release him, and then after they're released, when they chase him down again, they say, that's, that, now I'm going to destroy your army. That's, that's something that is built into Israel's history. It's a story they will tell over and over again. They will sing songs about it. Every year at Passover, they rehearse that event happening. They'll remember this. 
Can you kind of understand why New Testament folks might have expected Jesus to do the same? There was the most awesome military power in the world occupying their land. They had been yearning to throw him off, but they couldn't find anybody who could do it. Jesus shows up with these miraculous powers, kind of like what, Pharaoh, or what Moses was doing in front of Pharaoh. Maybe this is the one. Maybe he'll throw them off. He'll defeat our enemies, and he'll liberate us, and we'll have our nation back. It makes me really sympathetic to New Testament folks who didn't get it. They just didn't understand what Jesus was going to do. Even after the resurrection, right before the ascension, do you remember what the apostles said, Acts chapter 1? Is now the time you're going to restore Israel? Is this it? Now we're going to do it, right? Jesus is like, you don't understand. That's not, that's not what's going on. What they were expecting is they were expecting to Jesus come in and defeat their enemies, the Romans, the occupying force. Too easy. That's, that's too simple. There's an enemy that the people face that they could never even touch. That was sin, and it was death. And so Jesus comes in and he says, I'm going to face your enemies. I'm going to defeat your enemies. But it's not the enemies that you think of right away. There's a different way we're going to handle them. And so he comes in and he casts his enemy down. When they sent out the 72 and they came back, he said, Behold, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He, he says in John, behold, now is the, the God of this world cast out. So Jesus comes in and he defeats not the earthly enemy, but the real enemy, the eternal enemy, the enemy that's never going to fade away. He defeated Satan. He defeated death. He rose again from the grave. He utterly cast it down and he rose. It's a similar picture that's going on here. And how did he do it? He did it through his might. But his might was not what they were expecting. His might was to die. What? The Messiah is never going to die. Well, don't talk like that, Jesus. Remember Peter saying that? Taking him aside and rebuking him. Don't talk like that. The Messiah doesn't die. You're going you're to be fine. It's going to be great. Don't worry. And Jesus rebukes him and says, no, 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 no. That's not how my might works. I'm going to enter into my enemy's territory, succumb to the worst thing that they have to throw at me. I will die. And I will be in the ground for three days. But then after they've given me everything they possibly can, I will rise again. And now what are they going to do? You've killed me. What else can you do? Nothing. So his might is going to come and defeat his enemies, but not in the way we expected. Just like Israel getting to the edge of the sea and going, now what? There's an army on that side and a big water on this side. Now what are we going to do? They were expecting a different kind of deliverance. But God said, that won't bring me the maximum amount of glory. We'll do it this way. So Jesus does the same thing. The nations are to fear. What was Jesus' command before he ascends into heaven? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The nations are part of this. That I have defeated the enemies, now we need to go out to the nations. That's how we deal with Rome, is not by direct military conflict. We deal with Rome by undermining their entire social system with the gospel, with the truth that Jesus Christ has died and raised again, and that sins are broken, that people are equal. There is no hierarchy here. That was the, the nation's role. Now they are sent out to the nations to tell them this good news. And ultimately, the final place, where do we get delivered from this, is we can sometimes take our eyes off the, the end goal here and get stuck in the middle of it and think about the politics or the, the position or something like that. And that's one of the great dangers, I think, of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel 
is it, it's not wrong in saying God will provide for you and God will satisfy your soul. It is wrong in saying this is your best life now. Good heavens, I hope not. I'm looking for something much, much better. Lord, deliver me from my best life now to your best life in eternity. Show me where I'm going to go. We will go to his holy place. We will be in his sanctuary. We will dwell on his mountain. Look at Revelation chapter 21. After describing the city, it says there's no temple. The first response should be, where's God? I, I thought he needed it. I thought he wanted a temple. There's no God because, or there's no temple because God and the Lamb sit in the middle of the city. They don't need a temple. They don't need walls to keep people out. They dwell with their people. That's where we're going. That's where we're heading is to dwell with God, to be in his place. That's why we're called a nation of priests, is we get to enter the temple. We get to go into the holy place. We bring the sacrifice. We bring the praise. We bring the honor. That, that's where we wind up. Don't lose sight of that end goal. That's the place that God has delivered us from our sins, from death, to life. Ultimately, we will be led to himself. It's this middle bit that's a little rough. It's this middle part that gets kind of wearying at times. So as we head out into the desert next week, that should feel really familiar to us. We're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. We're just, that's the way it's going to go. And so we're there. We've been delivered out of, but we haven't arrived unto yet. And that's what we're anticipating. If you don't remember that, if you don't recall where we're going, and that's why Moses, I think, wrote it in here, is so that the nation would constantly sing this. Sing this song again. When they start getting despondent and weary and, oh, man, I just can't take it anymore. So, all right, you guys, stop. Sing the song. Go ahead. What's it say? That's right. Okay, that's where we're going. Don't forget where we're going. So that's the hope. And, and it, just like we were saying with the, the um, plagues, just like we were saying with the deliverance through the Red Sea, God delivers his people in exactly the same way, the way we don't expect but the way that is more glorious. So how does God in this section receive glory over Pharaoh? By casting him into the sea. But it's not because God delights in killing people. Ezekiel tells us, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. That's, that's not what, that doesn't thrill me. I would rather they turn and live. But he receives glory because of what his people are doing now. You've delivered us. You led us through. It was your mighty right hand. Your nostrils parted the sea. You stopped breathing and it crashed back in. You defeated the foes. You did that. You are leading us to a place. You are terrifying the nations. And that's where we're going. Lord, you are exalted. You are gaha, gaha. Doubly exalted. Way high and lifted up. You are incredible. And that brings God more glory because his people now are more satisfied. Don't forget how terrified they were when they got to the Red Sea. They were scared to death. But it was the deliverance from that fright that sprang their hearts into delight in who God is, that they could sing this song as they now head out on the road. So that's how God delivers his people. One of the, one of the techniques for evangelism is to tell people the law. Are you a good person? Well, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Really, let's look at the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? The idea there is a similar thing to this. Scare them. They should be frightened. That's what God expects? Love my neighbor as myself? I can't stand that jerk. Not me, him, my neighbor. How am I supposed to love my neighbor as myself? I can never live up to that standard. That's right. You need to be afraid of your sin 
so that you can turn to the one who can save you from it. And the response is, the response has got to be praise. Notice Moses did some theology in there. If your theology does not resolve in praise, if at the end of sitting and doing your study of theology, if it doesn't result in you going, God is just amazing, your theology is bad. It may be true. Every, every jot and tittle of it may be exactly right. But if it doesn't lead your heart to praise in the end, your theology is bad. Because what you're doing with it is bad. So be aware. Be, be very careful. There are, there are times, no matter what your theological system is, um, we talk about cage stage Calvinists. <laughs> they just become convinced of Calvinism, and now they're the meanest people on the planet because they're right and everybody else is wrong. I have run into dispensationalists who were so bitter because they got it right, and why can't you see? And, and you just have to be careful. It's not a problem with the theology. Pick your theology. It's a problem with the human heart. I had a hard time getting my hands on this truth. I, I had really struggled to understand this truth. Now I got this truth, and that makes me smarter than you. I'm better than you are. Aren't I smart? Look how smart I am. Be very aware. If your theology, if you don't reach for theology and go, that's, that's it. Lord, you are so amazing. Then you're doing it wrong. And check your heart. So that, that was what was, that's what has attracted me to reform theology is not just that it has all these nice square edges and, and really beautiful shapes that fit together really nice. It does, but it gives us, in my opinion, the biggest, most glorious view of who God is. And so I had to learn to get over the cage stage where I'm going to fight everybody for it and get to the point where I go, this, is, this God is wonderful. So if, if Reformed theology is not your thing, does it show you more of God? Whatever your thing is, does it show you more of who God is? Or does it just make you feel smug and superior to somebody else? Moses wouldn't let him do it, would he? He said, this, you believe this? This is what God's done? This is who our God is? Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. And so that's why we have songs in worship. That's why we sing to the Lord, is because our theology leads us to worship. And now as we head on the road, as we're heading out into the desert, walking through the Sinai Peninsula and, and, and all that hardship, don't forget where we're going and let that resolve in praise. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for delivering us out of our sin, for delivering us out of broken thoughts, broken desires, corrupted loves. And Lord, we look forward to be delivering, delivered unto the new heavens and the new earth where sin and death and hell Satan has all been cast into the lake of fire and where we can freely walk in your presence because you have liberated us to yourself. Lord, that's a glorious picture. And I pray as we wander through the desert now, as we start our journey toward Mount Sinai and then through the, the wilderness before we get to the Jordan, Lord, would you help us draw more people along with us to call more names, to have more people join us, people not like us, Moabites, Canaanites, other people. Lord, because we want to have your glory maximized. We want to have as many people delighting in your holiness, adoring you for your greatness as possible. And so, Lord, we pray to that end that you would use us for those purposes, that you would establish and build your kingdom. And, Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Christ who makes it all possible. Amen.